Let's do one more. This one's titled, I don't have enough good words. Exclamation point five stars. Amy Marie 18. So wonderful. Thank you guys for taking this on. That was good. That was good, Steve. So thanks for leaving that review. You guys, please, it would help us so much if you would leave a rating and or review wherever you listen to this podcast. See, if you're going to say a phrase like land a plane with some sex, then (laughs) tell me to unpause. Like, I want to capture that. (laughs) From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Steve Weens, and me, Luke Bronner. So we left off talking about shame, among other things. And when I pressed stop, Tifa, you said something about where you'd want the conversation to go. Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to discuss shaming, like receiving shame from others. And then also, what does it feel like when we participate in the shaming? And I think that we see a lot of that on social media, but I also think it can happen in person or with friends. And I'm wondering if anybody has an experience or knowledge about like, why does it feel good to like jump on the shame wagon? Like to shame someone else. What does that feed and why do we do it? Yeah. Cause like I've been shamed and it feels terrible to get shamed and I can share more about that later. But like when I watched the movie Taken, um, I watched it. No, I'm serious. I watched it when it first came out. Sorry. It's just a reflex. I laugh anytime anyone references the movie taken, but go ahead. <laughs> my dad has no special skills, so that would not have been my situation. <laughs> my daughter was traveling to the Middle East when that came out oh my gosh. and I chose not to watch it. Yeah. So. so I watched it and like, you know, it's like a tour to justice is what I used to call it. And there was something when I first watched the movie, when it came out a decade ago, that it felt like vindicating to watch all those terrible trafficking people die, you know, and like Liam Neeson, like has no mercy. And it's just like, you know, I actually rewatched it a month ago because it came up and I just was like, Oh, I wonder, I haven't seen that in a while. I wonder if I should watch it again. And I was really uncomfortable. It felt really bad watching it. And not because I didn't want like traffickers to be punished or to like stop trafficking young women, but like just seeing the rampage of violence, you know, and I mean, shame is emotional violence. Like when we get in a group and shame someone together, we're committing emotional violence, I think on somebody. And so I just had such a different experience with it. And I think part of it is that I've had a really interesting journey with realizing that I'm connected to all things and all life and all people. And so when I hurt you, I'm hurting myself and that feels bad. It's also given me a lot of compassion when somebody hurts me to realize that it's not about me, you know, and I can still have compassion on them. It doesn't feel good, but I've been curious, like, what is it in us that sort of like enjoys watching somebody else get punished? Like, why does that feel good? And I used to think when I used to believe in hell, you know, hell was this just like annihilation. It was like complete like destruction of what is bad. 
And now I realize that for me, justice is about healing what is broken or bringing something that's been cut out back into wholeness, which is also connected to black holes. I can talk about that later, but that's really shifted for me. So it's more compelling to me to think about somebody who's like, like what everyone's like, what about Hitler? You know, that's like, it always goes back to Hitler. I know everything and does. I'm yeah. serious. And it's like, I used to think, well, yeah, Hitler needs to like die and like not live and be completely desecrated and no longer exist. But like, what would actually be more compelling is like a real reckoning, right? Real grief and then healing and then goodness to come out right? Like we don't want to burn the garden and nothing ever grows out of it again. We want to pull out the dead roots and plant new seeds and see new life grow. And so what is it in us? Like, what is it in me to make it personal that like, sometimes I can still feel it rise up. Like when I'm like, I want to burn it down. I I mean, like, that's how I feel inside. Yeah. I think that we think people deserve harm for the harm they cause. Like that's our idea of justice, which (laughs) probably has some ties to like the theology of substitutionary atonement, like that we Mm -hmm. think that harm is the only way to make right harm that has been caused, which is just not true. I don't think that's true. So like, how does that relate to shame? Can I ask a question with this first? And I think I'm just curious because if we have a view of God, that God needed to kill his own son in order to create a connection with us, I believe that's a very warped view of what scripture is actually saying. I think it's warped. I used to believe that though, not like somebody pointed it out to me, but that was kind of what was the context. Jesus needed to come die on the cross in order to save me from who I am. And somehow that would make me closer to this God. And so I wonder in some ways, given what you're talking about, is there this mentality of there are certain kinds of violence that are actually bringing about redemption. And it's like, if that's an undertone we've got, I'm thinking about the purity culture. They're trying so desperately. What they were trying to do was protect people, young people from pain that they had actually experienced Mm -hmm. as adults. I mean, the adults are trying to protect the children from pain. And so they see this, they jump on, we've talked about I kiss dating goodbye. People jumped on the bandwagon. They found this thing. Let's go. Let's make this the savior. But what happened is it created a culture of denial and disassociation from our physical bodies, from our emotional beings, and put out there something that was false to being a human. And my wondering is what got missed in all of us? Because purity culture said, this is good. Why do we jump on those bandwagons? Why do we? And I wonder if deep down, I don't know, this is theology of Becky. I'm not sure, but maybe we want to belong. I wonder, purity culture followed a script. Every culture needs a scapegoat. Every person in every culture needs to feel like they belong. And the way our brains work is we belong because we believe certain things. We do certain things. We don't do certain things. And we need in order to feel like every once in a while to feel like we still belong, we need to outcast the scapegoat that doesn't belong, that doesn't fit the bill. So that's, I think why we end up shaming people is because there's something deeply in our brains and our that's existed for, you know, thousands and thousands of years that needs to not only like, Belonging is such a beautiful word. I belong. 
but we use scapegoating in order to feel like we belong. And so whenever we feel some threat to our own belonging, the natural, almost unthinking response is to shame and scapegoat. Rene Girard is one of the most brilliant recent theologians who says that penal substitutionary atonement theory, that God needed to kill Jesus in order to, (laughs) to be in relationship with us, is faulty thinking that Jesus chose to go to the cross to end scapegoating. He chose to be a scapegoat so that scapegoating would end. And it was his choice as God to go to the cross volitionally. It wasn't God sending Jesus. It was Jesus being God, ending the system of scapegoating. And I find that theology to be very refreshing. Oh my hasn't, gosh, that is so freeing. That's so much ended more freeing. scapegoating, sadly, but... I think that's one perspective anyway, I, of understanding why we shame, why we... Why we enter into it. Like yeah. you said, Latifah, like, why do we enter in and suddenly, because we all do it at times and it doesn't feel good. I think we have a, a mindset of membership instead of communion. So like when I think of belonging... Oh, mic can drop sort there. Of, can you pause yeah. for just a minute yeah. and say that again? Yeah. Can you so, just pause and say that again? I think that we have a mindset of membership rather than communion. So you're either in or out rather than you are with in any given moment. And so like the thing that I have found as I've gotten older and have found myself like moving farther and farther and farther away from anything that resembles conservative ideology, be it political or theological, I find myself way more at home with in like more progressive ideas. And that's good for me. But what I find is that I do the same thing on this side of it. I look back and be like, Oh, you think that way, or you believe that way? Like you're obviously not in. And so that incapacitates my ability to just be with. And if, <laughs> if that's not what the incarnation of, of Christ is about is withness, then I don't know what it is. And I, again, I, I hesitate to say that because I don't want this show to feel like so perfectly geared towards only people who believe one theology over another, but that is the theology in which I identify myself. And so that witness is super compelling and super convicting. Really quick, the Jesus choosing to be the scapegoat that would end. I really struggle with that. Like yeah. I struggle with scapegoat violence being the answer for violence. Cause that's still happening. I think that might be a different podcast. So that'd be fun to talk about on another break. But when I think about, the violence of purity culture. It's the violence of cutting ourselves off from our desire. So like that would be the violence to me, like, or or like our body, our desire, our body, our connection to that. And I think about like one of the reasons I think I've enjoyed shaming people privately in my side of my mind, or sometimes with other people, I think it's rooted in pride or jealousy or both. So like, I'm really like, proud of myself for abstaining from sex, right? Like until marriage or whatever it is that I, I did. And so like, when I see somebody else break that mold, I think there's a part of me that's like, well, then you don't get the reward that I get because I, I did it right. And you're technically doing it wrong. So what do you mean you're happy? Or what do you mean you have a great sex life? Or like, I've heard stories of people who've had to keep their identity to themselves and somebody else comes out there can be a lot of anger at the person coming out because that person's like, well, I've had to withhold. So how come you don't have to withhold? And that can be rooted in jealousy or pride or both. And so like, I'm still trying to like deconstruct like why I've enjoyed that or like, 
you know, you could talk about vaccines. You could talk about politics. It's like anytime we have like an us versus them group of like, I'm doing it right and you're doing it wrong. So I enjoy like bashing you. I think like the real danger is that we can get to the actual cancel culture mentality, like even with the sex conversation or the purity culture conversation, like, oh, this person still believes purity culture is the best way. Well, am I going to cut myself off from them? Am I going to cut myself off from experiencing them as a human and their humanity? And I think like one of the strong things about this table is we don't all agree on everything, but we can still embrace each other's humanity, like in the journey and the discussion. And I think that's like something that's crucial as I'm verbally unpacking this, when we talk about something so sensitive, part of the risk when somebody like comes out with their real thought or real fear or real experience is that like, are you going to cancel me? Are you going to think less of me? Are you not going to respect me anymore? I've been canceled by lots of people in the last four months because of my pride post. And like, it's really okay. Like Maybe I, give some context for people who don't know what you're talking about. Oh yeah. So like I have that band that's me page GXVI. <laughs> I have that alternate identity. Well, it used to be member filled and now it's just me, but it's a worship music brand or genre that I've done for 10 or 12 years. And I've never really done a, a public pride for like pride month from page GXVI. I've done like a story, but I've never done like a static post, I think it was called. And so I decided this year it was just really time because I've been an advocate personally and in my community for 20 years. And I'm like, how am I not doing this Latifa? And I know why I wasn't doing it. I didn't do it because of what happened, but I'm still really glad I did it. But I did a static post where I had a video of me doing posters. So whether you had the volume on or not, the video would catch your eye and you would see what I'm saying. And I was just being saying like, you're welcome here and there's nothing wrong with you. And like, I don't think you're sinful. <laughs> and like, and then I, there was a lot of pushback. And then the next day I released another post exp like directly speaking to the audience that was angry with me for supporting like pride month. And then that got a lot of pushback. And so I actually had to delete my Twitter profile because it was so tough. And then Facebook was like 70, 30, really mad at me, 30% not mad. And then uh, Instagram was like the inverse of that. And I think it's just because of the generation of the audience. And then I actually got blocked on Instagram for 10 weeks because a bunch of people reported me for abusive hate speech to put me in the algorithm to get me kicked out. And so I was kicked off. And it was really difficult to like get back on the platform because the algorithms have systematic oppression built into them as well because they're built by people. So, and robots have like no compassion. So, <laughs> and so like, you know, there were a lot of people who were livid with me. And I actually, one of the thoughts I had was if any of them heard fun parts, they would hate me more because people don't really contact me about the show at all. Like you guys get, I feel like a lot more outreach, but somehow like, I don't know, I, I just sort of get bypassed, which is totally it's fine with me. It's neither here nor Somebody there. Somebody contact Latifa. No, no, no. I'm not asking. I'm actually not asking for that. But, like, but I'm just saying like that. I don't, I'm not getting any attention for that. Cause I think the people that need to find it are finding it, which is perfect. But all that to say is that like, I could tell the way that people started posting and reposting that there were people literally enjoying. Cause it, I could tell at some point it started aggregating out to people that aren't fans of my music and don't know me. So it would be like somebody would post about it and warn them about this, you know, Jezebel spirited or daughter of the devil or <laughs> heretic. And it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like the prolactin. Exactly. 
Those is all getting feel like stirred album up. titles for future, <laughs> yeah. future but, projects. But there is a prolactin yeah. that gets out yes. that is looking for more prolactin it's we've talked about before. Feeding and it something. feeds something. Like go back to season one, but the reality is there's something, and I've never thought of that happening in a digital way because I think about that in a physical way. That's how mobs get started. And yeah. I'm just, but I've never it's thought of from mob. a digital. So it's like a digital mob of prolactin. That's just, let's keep feeding on this. Oh yeah. And it's scapegoating. You got scapegoated because you used to be a part of that team or perceived as a part, yeah. perceived as a part of that team. Yeah. And in order to maintain your belonging on the team, there is a physical need to scapegoat those who have left the team or have perceived to have left the team or, and that's the script. I mean, that's the and, script. You're right. That's I was like, the script. But how do we change the script? And that's actually my argument with Jesus choosing to be a scapegoat because it's keeping the script. My thing on the scapegoating, I don't know if Rene Girard is right. But it's like, think Maybe. of, think of Gandhi, you know, and his not, it's actually a nonviolent response mm. to go all, he, Jesus never chose to do violence. He mm. chose to absorb violence so that. That's and, interesting. So that, that, and I love your pushback. I want to yeah. think about that more. I'm not trying to defend it or. You can. But I am trying to say a point of clarification yeah. is that. That's interesting. Jesus Absorbing. is not doing any violence. In fact, if Jesus was God. God was then showing, I hate violence so much that I will absorb it. And I'm, I can, because I am love, you know, and, and I don't know where that goes. Yeah, you know? no, no. Yeah. But I guess I'm curious is, is there a way where there's no need for violence? And like, I'm asking myself that because is there a way where I don't have to punish myself or punish someone else for like what's being exchanged between us. Like what's the way, because I, I would say this, Yeah, your post coming out finally as to what you really believed. Is there a way to do that without receiving what you received? I think that I knew it was going to come. I knew it was going to encourage some people and really upset other people. I believe that the reason why people who are advocates in the community don't go public is because of the public shaming and because of the canceling. Like I'll lose my job. I'll lose my funds. You know, I, and that's a real fear. I just made the choice that were, however it affects me financially, however it affects my career, I can no longer withhold in my body the violence of cutting off this belief from like the integrity of who I am anymore, having it be separate from my public persona that was causing more harm than the fear of finance, because I've been learning so much about integration and wholeness and the harmony. I would love to keep fighting for inside myself. So fighting for that's even that language is but I think advocating for inside myself. So I, you absorb the violence though. You didn't do any act of violence. You no. stood up for people who were oppressed knowing what was going to happen and what you knew was going to happen did happen. You absorbed that violence. And I wonder if people who are your friends and not your friends saw you who are LGBTQIA plus and said, Oh, she was willing to absorb something for me. That's exactly right. And so, I, I, I yeah. totally see your point. And I guess what I'm wondering is though, maybe it's because one person isn't enough. Maybe it's because we need a lot of people 
to absorb before the system can actually change. Like one white blood cell isn't enough inside the body. Like, you know, the body is a real teacher, right? We need so much more to like shift or change the system of the body or the disease it's fighting, right? Like one little COVID amoeba is not going to give me COVID, but like a lot of COVID, you know, like, you're right. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, yes. me, I'm guessing what I'm, I'm asking is like, you know, us having this conversation about purity culture and sexuality is like one part of the body of the community of things that we love to talk about that matter. That's been causing a lot of harm. And maybe that's why we're encouraging people to go home and talk about it. Cause we need more people to be talking about it to actually diffuse the shame and like diffuse the pain. It's like one isn't enough. I'm never going to be enough. I'm not even enough for myself. So it's like, it's the whole community absorbing so that it can actually really shift so that like the violence doesn't have to keep perpetuating. I'm talking a lot. Me too. I'll, I'll promise. But this is where the body of Christ, if you look at that, and, and I know that's a triggering term for many people. Maybe you've left the faith. That's totally, totally fine. But following the metaphor of the body of Christ absorbing violence, take it beyond one person and take it to a community of people who aren't known by what they believe, who aren't known by the stances they take or the people they protest but who are known by the way that they love and stand up for people who are being harmed mm. at personal cost. To me, that's the work of the body of Christ. It's not what you believe. It's not what you claim to believe about heaven or hell. It's not what you, what church you go to, or if you go to church at all, it's do you, do I, do we, and you're right. All I can do is me. That's all I can do. And it's not enough. But if we together can say, I will pay whatever price that I need to pay so that people who are marginalized, oppressed and hurt by the system, the empire, whatever you want to call it, can start to change, can be lifted up instead of pushed down. Then we're doing the good thing, the toe of work, the good work, you know, and all I can do is drip, drip, drip my little work. That's all I can do. I can't do it all. I think the place where my mind went, because I also struggle with the scapegoating language is like maybe another way to think of it, and maybe this is all congruent with actually what you're talking about with the absorbing, is that like maybe the act of Jesus dying, and I think this would be compelling whether you believe any of it or not. I think here's just a compelling notion, is if that act was actually just a simple holding up of a mirror to humanity and saying like, look, here I came, God in flesh, lived perfectly, however you interpret that, was born not of sin or of, you know, with the whole virgin birth, all of these things, they're completely mysterious, but like here, even now you resort to this, which, you know, we're talking about shaming other people, but like, I mean, crucifixion is a wonderful metaphor for that, I think. And so, or vice versa, shaming is a metaphor for the other, but maybe it's just this holding up of the mirror to say like, look, even still, like, look who you are, look who you are. If you would even do this to mm -hmm. me, that's good. To me, that's a place that you can build from. That's a place that you can operate from. The hard part for me with the language of the whole, you know, quote, body of Christ sort of absorbing is that it's just like, I don't want to get into like a saviorist mentality of like, well, I will endure this so that everyone yeah. else can, you know, I'm doing this for my LGBTQIA friends because I've got to absorb some of the, I don't know, that just, that sort of, for me, leans towards saviorism. You know, I hear that big time. I'm just taking it back to Latifah's great example. She's not trying to be a savior in that. 
she did have to pay a price though for that statement that she made. And so is that being a savior? Is that just doing the right thing? It's very complex. I I appreciate the complexity of this big time. There was something in it for me. Like it wasn't just for my community that I love and care about is that I could no longer feel that kind of divide in myself. So it wasn't like I was trying to save anybody. (laughs) Like if anything, I was, I was like, I want to be more congruent Yes, because that gives me more inner peace. But I, I think that like, you know, the truth is I don't know really, really where I stand right now in regards to the crucifixion at all. Blood sacrifice really stresses me out. So I just Mm -hmm. am not dealing with that right now because like, I would never ask that of somebody I love or require that. But when I go back to like the idea of like love and generosity and compassion and kindness and self-control and like what we call the fruit of the spirit, if you grew up in the church, those things I can really jive with still, you know, like that, that really, it does something for me. And those are things that are practices that require practice and are that we like help each other with and teach each other with. And so like, you know, the flip side of generosity is stinginess. Would that be the word? The flip side of love is hate. The flip side of kindness is, I mean, I'm just trying to think Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. the opposites. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm wondering if like, it's a lot easier for me to be kind when someone shows me kindness and my instinct to be mean when someone's mean to me is definitely higher because I had a lot of angry, mean thoughts when I was reading people telling me that I deserve to burn hotter and hell than other people and like how terrible I am and how, how like I have a lesser mind. Cause I clearly don't understand what love is like, it's not fun to read those things. I know those things aren't true of me, but like, you know, I had a friend say like, well, why aren't you fighting back? You know? And I was like, because that's a vulnerability to like show that I'm upset and show that I'm angry. And this isn't a safe place for me to show any of my emotions. So I'm going to be like really calm. And then with the people I trust, I can yell and cry and be frustrated because there's safety there. And so like, I'm like realizing it's all coming also back to safety. It can be really hard when you show up and say something that you know has a risk or vulnerability for you, whether it's about your sex life or it's about your spiritual life or a belief system, like when you're met with hostility and shame, all it did was shut parts of me down. But when I would open up with people I trusted, it gave me a lot of courage. And when I see other people advocating, it gives me a lot of courage. And so like, it really is like, like magnets, like plus and minus, plus and minus, like repel and attract, repel and attract. And so like, I guess I, I'm trying to ask myself, like, you know, how do I want to be polarized? Like, how do I want to interact mm. with people? You know? And the truth is like, I don't really want to like repel somebody. I want to attract somebody, but I can't be, I'm not always in control of what your plus and minus is. Yep. All I can do is put mine out and see what happens and then not take it personally. <laughs> if you run away from me. I love that metaphor because you're not in control of that, but you can put out your energy. Well, and I wonder how have we been taught to use the power that we've been given? Hmm. Ooh. I was just with my grandchildren and my little 16 month old grandson, my husband and I were walking him on the sidewalk and a little roly poly fuzzy little caterpillar was walking across, you know, right in front of us. And we showed it to him. We got him down, let him touch it and everything like that. And then he stood up and he started to stomp on it. And my husband very quickly pulled his foot away and said, no, 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 no. We don't want to hurt this. This is, we need to help it. So, and we explained what we needed to do with it. The next day we were walking close to the same place. Same thing happened again. And my husband had taken and kind of showed 
the little one how to help it get to the side of the sidewalk so it wouldn't get hurt. And what I watched happen is the same thing happened. We stop, we pause, he pets it, he talks about it, he just does his little hands, and then he's like, uh, uh, he wants to help get it to the side. Not prompted, but had to be taught how to use the power that he actually had. And I think for a lot of us, I mean, I'm personally, I want to say, I think a lot of what has happened for me in the church and Christian environment, my power was meant to bring people to Christ, whatever the hell that means. I honestly don't know now, but I was measured by how I wielded that power on behalf of other people. And I think that is abuse of power to try and think that people are less than and need to be brought somewhere. That's good, Becky. And yeah. I think I want to be taught, I am reteaching myself how to be with people where they're at and learn and be curious and have compassion for them. And also at the same time, have compassion for my journey and the way I was raised. I don't think anybody was trying to harm, I mean... For the most part, nobody was trying to harm me. They were trying to lead me in a way that they had been led. And all I'm saying is, no, thank you. But I can have compassion for that part of myself, but I have to retrain myself in what I'm going to do with the power I've been given as a human being. I believe created in the image of divine. I have responsibility with that power. It's good. But I have, honestly, who am I watching for how, who's going to teach me how to notice the thing, places where I want to stomp something out and instead help me learn how to let it grow and be. This just came across my Instagram like yesterday and I'm like, oh my gosh. And it goes, before your children came, they were told that you would love them. So whatever you do, however you treat them, to them, it is love. If you are cruel to them, they will think it is love. If you yell at them, they will think it is love. If you ignore them, they will think it is love. If you walk away from them, they will think it is love. And if you are kind to them, they will think it is love. And if you are gentle with them, they will think it is love. And if you listen to them, they will think it is love. And if you hold them tightly, they will think it is love. Because we cannot point to anything that exists and say, this is love. So you will teach your children every day they are with you what it is. And one day, when someone else treats them the way you treated them, they will say, this is love. So treat them well, no matter what you were taught yourself, Mm. Ian Thomas. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. And it just struck me because it is so true. It's this intangible thing. And just even when you think about how we've been taught about God and all those things and how it comes out in all these ways that we are like reparenting ourselves in so many ways too. And so I just thank you for that story. Yeah, both of that is so good because the big disagreement on like with me and the pride post with people who are angry with what I said is that I don't understand what real love is to them. The most loving thing to do is to keep the queer person out of hell. And the only way to do that is to say, you know, don't identify this way so you can commune with us. And that's heartbreaking. I mean, I I actually really understand that I carried that as well. I mean, it's devastating. And so like I would say to some people, I think we just disagree what love actionable love looks like. You know, it's heartbreaking. And like the teaching of love is such a powerful, like powerful point to bring up. Like how do we teach each other with the power we have? Because the power we have is to really love each other. And love is such like a massive healer. And for me, as I've thought about raising our daughter, what stories do I want her to grow up in? 
And I keep thinking about this narrative of, I w- and this, I grew up in the Lutheran tradition, and I know this is true of a lot of different, but it's that I was born so bad that God had to send his son to die for me so that I would be saved. I'm like, that is so messed up. Mm-hmm. And I feel like for the past 38 years, I've been trying to backfill my worthiness. Wow. And it's like, that is a never ending hole because of the way that I was raised. And again, from a loving, like, that's just what the water that we were all swimming in. We didn't know any different. And so for me, the most profound shift in my healing journey was studying Genesis 1 and learning that Tove, the idea of goodness being rooted and planted in you from the very beginning, and that's what's being nurtured forward for your entire life, was like so groundbreaking that I'm still working through that. But I believe now that God is love from the very beginning, and he's been trying to tell us he, she, it. Like, it's funny how like he is still the narrative that I, or the words I use, and I'm like, I don't want to use that language even. But the mystery is saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I believe when Jesus came, that was such a profound message that we didn't know what to do with it, that mm-hmm. we rejected it. Yeah. And we pushed it away and was like, we can't, we don't know how to love ourselves. And so that, I think in our humanity, we crucified Christ. Like that's the way that I've had to reconcile it because at the end of the day, I believe that there's this much bigger expanse that's holding us all and just saying, you are enough, mm-hmm. you are safe. I've got you. I'm not going anywhere. And that's what I want my daughter to hear yeah. every day and how different she will grow up. And I hope trust the world and have a different starting place than I've had. Cause I feel like I'm that intergenerational person that's trying to make that massive shift of like, okay, I'm going to give you a different starting point that I didn't get. And that I think about where we've come culturally. Like I've had this conversation with my mom. Like it's not, I don't say this to shame you at all. It's like where everybody's at. Becky, when you were talking about teaching, like with the power, so it brought me back to post-divorce the first time I met you and we were having tacos. And I was like, I had just had a couple experiences with a couple different men, like not back to back, but like over, <laughs> over a couple years. No, no, I mean like simultaneously. I mean, you know, there was, <laughs> no, but. no. But like, over like the two years after my divorce, I had like some interactions and I said to you, like, I feel like a newborn baby here. And I don't totally know what I'm doing because everything I was taught pre-marriage was like withhold, restrict, withhold, restrict, you know, don't do anything. Don't, don't date anybody. Like, you know, keep it locked up, keep it safe, keep it tight, you know? And I knew that there was like something in me that like had to like go do some things and had to like figure some things out experientially. But I also know that sex is powerful, you know, and sex is one of the forms of actionable love. And so like, I knew that there could be some risk, there could be some harm. And so it was like that part of me that was still in my mid thirties and like adulting in life was like, well, don't do anything too crazy. And then the part of me that's a newborn baby is like, do everything, try it. Like kids put everything in their mouth. Like, <laughs> but like, I just think that like, you know what I'm saying though? And so it's like, I remember like meeting you and being like, I just, I need help because the disparity in my experience and what I know and who I am and the age of my like person. And then the age of my sexual identity and experience is, is vast right now. 
You know, when I look back at the last four years now, it was my story and it, it really did inform me. But like, there were some things where I'm like, oh man, I would, I would do that different now. And if like I had a child, I would do that different. And I think it's like, we're so afraid of the power that sex brings that like we tell our kids or ourselves or each other, like, we'll just avoid, 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 avoid until it's in this exact context. And then like some people get married and have great sex lives and some people get married and experience rape. But I want to say that if we're not teaching people how to be sexual beings, you don't become a sexual being by having sex. You are a sexual being who's exploring in sex. And if we cut that off completely, I'm not saying go out there and just have sex with everybody and have a, and you'll figure it out later and then it's going to be fine going to your marriage. It's not, but we're not helping people to be able to be engaged with their body, engaged with another human being and make healthy choices. We're not. If we're telling them this has to be cut off until you're married. Marriage is not the magic pill that suddenly makes sex great. Being a human being and being aware of another human being and aware of yourself makes sex great. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just, I just orgasmed a little bit. I I know, the both of us okay. were like, yeah. oh. okay. <laughs> I think the plane has landed. <laughs> Looks like immediately like end show. <laughs> we'll, we'll see you next week. <laughs> This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast.com. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. So you think about somebody who's had sexual trauma and then suddenly is in this, what they've been told, it's okay here, marriage-wise, and then they're actually re-traumatizing their body if they've never dealt with that trauma. That's what I was doing for years. That's what I realized when I finally woke up to it and realized, wait, I had sexual abuse in my past. I needed to deal with that in order to be able to be fully present with my partner and not keep re-traumatizing my body.